I wrote in my notes, good afternoon, it bold and underlined because for the biggest part of my life, it was always good morning. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. <laughs> I'm excited to share what God, God has been teaching me through, throughout these last few weeks um, in the passage that we'll be going over uh, today. We're going to be continuing the series titled, By This We Know, and today the sermon title is Truth and Lies. So let's turn to 1 John chapter 1, and we will actually go back to where Andrew left off, uh, started last week, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this beautiful afternoon you have given us, the day that is your day, Lord, to come together, fellowship together, in communion as one body, to give you glory, and to, Father, uh, uh, learn and to speak about you and your word and what you have done in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you help me to um, say what you have given me to say. I pray that I say so in clarity. And, Lord, as well for the congregation, I pray that you would convict each and every one of us so that our lives may be, um, may be uh, fragrant unto you, Lord, that we may please you and show an example of Christ in our lives each and every day. Amen. So this week, we're going to be covering the remainder of, this, of the series, of, sorry, of the verses 5 to 10. Today, I will be focusing, focusing on verses 8 to 10. As a refresher from last week, the main point and the main uh, thread that will be following this verse is verse 5, which says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Two weeks ago, Marco pointed out that we have fellowship with Christ and with the Father. And this was stated in verse 3 of that same passage. Since there's no darkness in God and in his son Jesus, and he cannot be in fellowship with darkness, how can we discern true fellowship from a false one? How can I know that I am truly walking in the light? Before I start... I'd like to just give us a quick refresher on the topics or definitions of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Andrew already brought these terms. I will just make sure that we remember. Orthodoxy, simply put, is what's in here, what we believe. What is the theology? What is the knowledge we have? And then we have orthopraxy, which is how do I apply what I understand or what I believe in? That's exactly what John is showing us here, these examples of orthodoxy, orthopraxy, where we see a, for a true believer, these two concepts will be continuous and will be consistent. 
But he, we also uncover the dissonance of these two concepts for the unsound believer in light of the scriptures. So the following three lies, since today's title is Lies, Truth and Lies, we'll be focusing on today's teaching. Lie number one, claiming to have no sin. Lie number two, not needing to confess our sins. Lie number three, claiming that we have not sinned. So first lie, let's start unpacking this passage verse by verse. We'll start from verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The first lie John is showing us here is, is the sin of, actually the present is sinlessness. As Pastor Andrew explained to us um, in the first sermon of this series, John is writing to a group of believers against the false teaching of the Gnostics. Their concern is not sin and salvation. For them, it's illusions and special knowledge, which is gnosis. Sin just isn't in the equation for the Gnostic groups, and they have given themselves up for all sorts of debauchery. They believe that one cannot be sinful if sin cannot exist. The lie that one can be sinless implies one thing at its core, that our sinfulness enters when we commit our first sin. Because to say that we have no sin means it has never entered us in the first place. Some believe we, have a sin, we are sinful because we have committed a sin, not because we have a sinful nature. In their mind, there's a chance to not be sinful. That's obviously a lie, because the Bible teaches us that sin is very real, as we'll see in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. So please turn to Romans 5, verse 12. Romans 5, chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. A few things can shed light on the, the lie of sinlessness in that very passage. Firstly, it is through one man, Adam, that sin came into the world. And we see that it is through one man, Jesus, that the many are made righteous. One man's disobedience led to death. The other's obedience led to life. One man's trespass led to condemnation while the other's sacrifice led to justification and life for all believers. Death spread to all men because all sinned, verse 12 tells us. Before we were even born, death was imposed on us, and no sinlessness can save us from it. Secondly, notice the wording in verse 12, sorry, verse 19. By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. This means before any of us were born, conceived, and created, God had already counted us as sinners. In the sentence, the, words, the word were comes from the Greek word katestatesan. I've been practicing this all week. I'm very proud of myself. And is a perfect tense. 
It represents a completed actions. The many were made sinners literally means that the moment Adam sinned, we all were counted as sinners. To be crystal clear, we do not become sinners because we committed our sins. Our sin nature inhabits us at conception. So just as the early church developed the doctrine of the Trinity, which defines who God is and gives us an understanding from the word and systematizes it, the doctrine of original sin helps us to understand our sinful nature and how we inherited in the first place. What we just learned, or a few minutes ago, is systematized in that very doctrine we'll be reading. So if you have the Baptist Confession of 1689 in your Bibles, please uh, open it to chapter 6. Otherwise, don't worry, we'll be projecting it for everyone. We'll be going to chapter 6, paragraphs 2 to 5. Paragraph 2. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, by sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Paragraph 3. They being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. Being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, until, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Paragraph number four. From this original corruption, whereby we are, all, we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. Finally, the fifth paragraph. The corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated, and although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motion thereof are truly and properly sin. Now, I understand that there's a lot of big words in there and also some sentences that are hard to grasp, but I highly suggest that we all take some time to study either these paragraphs or even just read. It's very short uh, in my experience for the uh, Baptism Confession of Faith. I'm sure Andrew would be pleased to guide you to where we can find it. It's on our website as well. Not only because all of that is systematized in a very short place, but also because all the verses that give support to this claim are shown. Therefore, each and every one of us can take the time to read these verses and study for ourselves. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples about faith and where he was ultimately going, his father's house, the following interaction occurred in John chapter 14. So now we're going to be going to John chapter 14, verse 5. Please turn there. John chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas said to him, meaning Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. 
from now on, you do know him and have seen him. I simply love how continuous and, and, and so logical and consistent John is, not only in the Gospel of John, where we see these keywords, truth, life, uh, lies, evil. It, it, it's all so beautifully interwoven together. So now knowing and following Jesus is knowing and following the Father. That's what we've just learned in this passage. If we're separated from God because of sin, but one claims to be sinless, why would they even need Jesus? This claim goes starkly against Jesus' teaching that he is the only way, he's the only truth, and he's the only life, and that no one knows the Father except through him. This is why John claims that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The concept of original sin, however, seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Why should I be counted guilty for a sin I never committed? I'd like to assure us that there's really a multitude of sins for which God can hold us accountable and guilty for. Ultimately, we're not guilty of Adam's sin. We're guilty for our own sins. It's our disobedience, pride, love of money, and lies, just to name a few, that nailed our Savior to the cross. However, what we did inherit from Adam is his sin nature, a corrupt nature, as we've read just before, not his sin per se. We inherited the consequence of his sin. God being holy and perfect will never accept corruption, as, as uh, Marco said a few weeks ago. This is where we come full circle in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we'd like to think that it isn't fair for Adam to represent us as a fallen race, it shouldn't be fair also for Christ to represent us before the Father and to have his righteousness imputed on us. We've now exposed the first lie. We'll now tackle the next one, not needing to confess our sins. Lie number one was a good example of orthodoxy, what I believe, I am sinless. Now we know this is a lie, the next, uh, the next part will give us some good orthopraxy. So let's go into verse 9 of our anchor uh, passage in 1 John. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The orthopraxy in this section can be summarized in a very simple sentence. Knowing we all have a sinful nature, we ought to practice confession and repentance. The word confession can be defined as, and I have a direct quote, I don't know if it'll show there, but I'll be reading from it here. The admission of what we did and the agreement with God that our actions or words were wrong. In a court of law, a person who confesses to a crime is agreeing that he or she did in fact violate a societal standard. When we confess our sins, we are admitting that we violated God's law. We admit that we chose to do, say, or think something opposed to God's will, and we stand guilty before him. How then, we can ask ourselves, can we confess our sins? Well, the Bible tells us of two different ways that we can do so and should do so. Firstly, 
we confess our sins to God himself. That's exactly the type of confession that John speaks in this very passage. We humble ourselves before him and confess that we have wronged him and ask him for his grace. However, our confession must also lead to repentance. The definition of the words confession and repentance are often confounded, but they mean two very different things. We just examined the definition of the word confession, which means, in a nutshell, acknowledging that we transgressed God's law. A, retent, a, a repentant person, however, however, will work to rectify the offense and to not do it again. Now, the second way we can confess our sins is to other believers with one another. The concept of confession to one an- with one another comes from James chapter 5. So please turn there with me to James chapter 5, verse 15. James chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and it is working. Indeed, we humble ourselves before the Father and to the body of Christ. We are instructed to confess our sins to one another and uplift each other as well in times of need. Now, we all know, and hopefully have learned if we didn't, that confession and repentance are fundamental in Christian life. However, there's a problem that persists in the modern church today that hinders the humility of believers. Last week, Andrew referred to a book titled The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. It states the the second commandment is that uh, affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. Of course, we rejoice uh, with God's mercy. Many of us say each and every day, where would I be without his grace? However, many believers are guilty of putting an exaggerated emphasis on individualistic potential and outright downplaying the serious consequences sin have in our life and in our relationship with God. They tend to diminish the very cause for which Jesus died and put their personal benefit in the spotlight while doing so. Come as you are. God loves you the way you are. God doesn't want to change you. God hates the sin, but he doesn't hate the sinner. Are just a few catchphrases used to ignore the sin and exalt the sinner's ego. How did the modern church get to this point? Three simple words. Ignorance is bliss. Indeed, biblical illiteracy is the quicksand many Christians find themselves in, and the more they resist studying the word, the more they sink in the sea of indifference. If we don't make it a point to know God's word, how can we know what is pleasing and displeasing to him? How can I know what makes him joyful and what makes him angry? When I am sinning against him and when I am being obedient. We can distinguish two types of, indif- of biblically illiterate Christians. Firstly, we have the naive individual that is being disobedient to the word and believes that his or her judgment 
is all they need to make the right call. Consider what Paul writes to Timothy in the letter of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, it's very clear that whoever desires to live a godly life will diligently study God's word and will also desire to do so. Make no mistake, we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. There's no middle ground. The second type of biblically illiterate believer is the voluntary ignorant. So that person will choose not to spend time in the Bible, not only because just for the sake of being disobedient, but also not to bind their own conscience. If I don't know what is sinful, I can't really be found guilty for any sin. If such a person doesn't read the word, then their conscience will not be subjected to the law of God. I encourage us to all really look and study at the book of Romans, uh, specifically chapter 7, where Paul really vividly shows us and explains how the law binds one's conscience and the relationship between the law and sin. Just to make sure, so make sure I don't uh, repeat last week, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll only be doing verses 7 to 8. So please turn to Romans chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if, I had not been, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. To systematize a little bit more our understanding of these type of sins, uh, there are two types of um, two types of, of general sins, right? In in these two individuals that we just looked at, first we have the sins of omission, and then we have something called sins of commission. A sin of commission is a sin we actively commit, whether we knew about this sin or not. It doesn't really matter. For example, if I go to the country of England and I drive on the right side of the lane and I get to an accident that has some serious consequence on someone's life, it really won't matter whether I knew about it or I didn't know about it. In the end, I made someone suffer. My consequence might be less or more depending on that, but I am still guilty of it. Now, on the other hand, a sin of 
omission is when we knew we should have done something right, but we didn't. Um, or refuse. As James chapter 14 and 17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. An example of sin of omission, it's like, imagine I'm the, the guy who's next to the guy driving on the right lane in England, and I know he's not supposed to, to be doing it, yet I fully decide not to tell him. That obviously isn't a sin, but I'm saying in the sense of you not being the one to commit, but refusing to uh, instruct the, the person, uh, knowing that they're on the course of committing a sin. We know that we need to confess our sins, how to do it, and that uh, we need to look to God's word for guidance. How about the second portion of 1 John uh, chapter 1 and verse 9? We just saw if we confess our sins, now it says, it, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is God faithful to, uh, and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from it? What does God's faithfulness and justice even have to do with forgiveness? Isn't it just a matter of his grace? For broad of you, uh, let's compare the same verse in the NASB translation. Uh, I think we will have the NASB showing up. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. So here, uh, there's a very big difference. If we confess our sins, same. He is faithful, same. Here's the major difference. And righteous, so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For the sake of being brief, we're going to focus on three words to make sense of the remainder of this passage. The word faithful, the word just, and the word cleanse. So first... And now I apologize, we're going to go a little bit into a Greek class, but uh, it, it'll be very succinct, I promise. Firstly, if we confess our sins, God is faithful to dot, 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 do something. The word faithful here comes from the Greek word pistos, which means that the subject is trustworthy, that that person is credible, they're dependable, they're truthful. It means we can safely trust Jesus at his word, there's no deceit in him, and we can believe him with full assurance. Secondly, if we confess our sins, God is just to dot, 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 do something. The word just comes from the Greek word dikaios, which means that the subject is equitable. But this word has an interesting connotation, meaning that this person is also holy and righteous. My opinion is that the NSB translators, did, uh, it, it's a little bit better, the word righteous, because it fits more in the context of that verse and gives us the, a better understanding of what that word means. It simply means that God is pure, upright, and irre irreproachable. Lastly, if we confess our sins, God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. How, do God, how does God cleanse us? It's Christ's blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we go back to verse 7 of the very same passage we are reading, it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus' blood is what cleanses us from the sin in our lives. Now we can put all the elements together. 
if we confess our sins and repent, God will forgive us our sins. Jesus' blood will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can rest assured of all these things because God, because God is righteous, he's holy, he is faithful, and he's trustworthy. I want to emphasize, however, that it's not our confession and repentance that cleanses us. It really is the blood of Jesus. The blood is what atones for our sins, not our good-willed action. He forgives us because, because he is righteous and faithful. In this historical context of the passage, the emphasis is very important because he indeed, here, that's the, remember, that's what Paul, uh, John is speaking to. He indeed came in the flesh. He indeed bled on the cross. We cannot attain atonement by some form of special knowledge, but only through Jesus. I'm going to stop here because I know that next week we have passages talking about the atonement of, uh, of uh, Jesus' blood, and so I will let Andrew take care of that subject. Finally, let's finish our study of passage of this passage by examining verse 10. 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Lie number three is saying we have not sinned. I want to point out a very subtle but crucial difference between the first lie we saw and the third, because a very valid question is, Josh, isn't the first question kind of the same as the third? No, there's a difference, and that difference is in the action. To say, I have no sin, means I'm a good person and I am not corrupted by sin or by sin nature. To say, I have not sinned, supposes one can stop from sinning at a particular point in time. An example of this could be saying, I stopped sinning the day I became a Christian. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. That's a very serious matter. We can then ask the question, what did God say about the ability to stop sinning that would make us, uh, make him a liar saying the contrary? That answer we can find in Genesis. Please turn to Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. Just as a context, here, after the flood, God produced due to man's and humans' despicable actions, Noah built an altar and offered sacrifices to God. Essentially, we're going to be reading here, it's God's reply to Noah's offering to him. So Genesis chapter 8, verse 21 says, When the Lord smelled and pleasing, the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from his youth. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. It says every inclination, or every inclination is to do sin. Not most, not some, all. A more direct instruction comes from the Apostle Paul when he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and all fall currently now short of the glory of God. There's really a lot of passages I could have used to illustrate that very same concept, but to be honest, I think that the Bible is a true testament to the fact that we are all wretched sinners in need of a savior. 
in need of a way to atone for our sins in order to be able to be even in the presence of a holy God. Although we cannot stop from sinning in this life, we're being sanctified each and every day as the Spirit works in us. We can look forward to the day when Jesus raises up from the grave and our sinlessness, sinfulness will be no more. Now, coming back to verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We're going to conclude the study of the passage. If we say we have not sinned, God's word is not in us. Please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, where we're going to be able to see a, a link between these, these two um, concepts. So, Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Here we're talking about the John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. This is all Jesus speaking right now. And the Father who sent me has himself bore, borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Here again. We see God bearing witness about Jesus in verse 37. And by us not believing this te testimony, we essentially make him a liar. Additionally, since God himself bore witness about his son, uh, and we say that we do not sin, his word does not abide in, abiding in us, since it's clear that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am. Am the foremost, First Timothy chapter one verse fifteen says. Now I want to emphasize that it says this, uh, the uh, of whom I am the utmost. Um, the, I am the utmost sinner. I am currently not. I have been the utmost sinner. I am now. So let's conclude today's teaching by just doing a quick recap of the lies and the truths that we've been learning throughout today. Lie number one, claiming to have no sin. This is a concept of orthodoxy, what we believe. We, lear we learned, or at least had an introduction to the doctrine of original sin. We learned that we didn't inherit Adam's sin per se, but we inherited his sin nature. We also learned that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Sinlessness would mean we wouldn't need him. If we believe we are sinless, his truth is not in us. Lie number two, not needing to confess our sins was a concept of orthopraxy. How do we apply now that we know this? We ought to confess our sins to God and to one another. Let us not fall in the trap of ignorance is bliss. Let's delve in the richness of his word and keep his instructions close to our hearts and please him. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us. Amen. Line number three, saying we have not sinned was, a, was an idea or a concept of orthodoxy again, what we believe. We cannot claim to have stopped sinning because Jesus came to save sinners. 
saying so goes against the father's witness about the son. We would therefore make him a liar and we prove that his word is not in us. Now, I'd like to invite all of us to contemplate about what we've learned about today. And I ask that we think about and truly ponder and confess and repent the same way that David did in Psalm 51. I'd, I'd like to ask you all to turn to Psalm 51 for the final verse of today. Psalm 51. For those who might not know the context of this passage, um, we have a king, King David, which is very beloved in the Bible, um, sees a beautiful woman. The problem is this woman is married. So what he does is he conspires and orchestrates the murder of her husband, Uriah. And he does that so that he can have the woman all to himself. It really, truly was an appalling sin. We're going to read the, part, the first part of his confession and repentance when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan about the very act he committed. Psalm 51, we'll be reading verses 1 to 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you for the, this amazing example that you've given us today. Lord, sometimes... Sin happens in, in life and we don't understand, but being able to read the example of David truly humbles us. And Father, I pray that each and every one of us this week can think about these words. Create in me a clean heart, Lord. Wash us, clean us, Father. We thank you, Jesus, that you've come, humbled yourself, uh, humbled yourself, came in flesh and in blood and died on the cross for our sins and atoned for them. And Lord, I pray that you give us the humility. May we be humble enough, Father, to come before you and before each, each other to ask for forgiveness and to ask and to repent. Lord, I pray that as, uh, as this week continues that we would uh, re-listen and look at the verses that we've been looking at. Father, may our daily life be a fragrance 
before you. May our lives be an example before others. Lord, may you be proud of us when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.